This is Nick Dodge and Jonah Chester with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin State Senate is poised to vote on several of Governor Tony Evers' political appointees tomorrow. The Republican-held chamber will be considering the nominations of four different appointees who serve as state department heads. Notably absent from that list is Sandra Noss. Evers is appointee to replace Frederick Prane as chair of Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board. Prane has become the center of controversy in recent months, as he has continued to serve on the board even after his term ended this past spring. Prane has cited legal precedent that allows a member of the Natural Resources Board to continue serving until their replacement is approved by the Senate. A new report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum indicates that the state's bars and restaurants are slowly recovering from the financial impact of the pandemic. But those businesses still haven't reached pre-pandemic levels. At the onset of the pandemic, employment in Wisconsin's bars and restaurants plummeted by nearly 50%. As of last month, the sector had largely recovered, but was still down nearly 9%, or roughly 20,000 people, compared to August 2019. After being canceled last year during the COVID-19 pandemic, the World Dairy Expo returns tomorrow to the Alliant Energy Center. State agricultural experts will be in attendance, as will hundreds of vendors and thousands of cows. But the behemoth event will likely have a scaled-down presence, as fewer international attendees plan to make their plan to make the trip during the pandemic. That's all according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The seven-day rolling average of COVID cases stands at 2,603 cases. 56.5% of Wisconsinites have had at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And today, state health officials said they're backing up federal guidance to get booster shots. They say booster doses are available for people who received both doses of the Pfizer vaccine more than six months ago and are at higher risk for getting or spreading COVID-19. That includes older individuals, residents in long-term care, and those with underlying medical conditions. It also includes healthcare workers and other people working in education, postal delivery, jails and prisons, public transit, and grocery stores. And that's it for the headlines. But before we turn to more local news, we have a special guest, Stu Levitan, also a WORT news contributor. He's in the studio and he wants to tell you a little something about our fall pledge drive. Well, thank you, Joan, and thank you, Nick. And yeah, well, first of all, oh, let's do this. Uh, we have a late-breaking uh, um, news that we had a new monthly donor in the waning moments of the Amy Goodman Democracy Now! Jack from Madison's North Side has uh, become a new monthly donor, and we really appreciate Jack's support, as we appreciated Karen's support earlier in the evening. And now's the time for you to show your support for live local news. Th- this is... This is about this is the hour that really has my heart here at WRT because I think the fact that we can provide you with four hours of live local news in the course of a week. We bring you more news in one week than the commercial radio stations bring you in a month. And we do it with volunteers. And the way we're able to do it is that during the during the over the course of time and especially over uh, this pandemic you've provided us with the resources your donations have gone to things like tape recorders and microphones and and air filters and and you know the things that radio reporters need to do to 
to ply their craft. We could not do it without you. Uh, we hear from you. Hear from us throughout the year. Now is the time of the year we really need to hear from you. You know the number is six zero eight two five six two thousand one. You know the website is wrtfm.org. You know that there's a Wart app. You listen. You give. You appreciate the news. We appreciate your support. Now let's go back to Nick and Jonah. Thanks, Stu. With October just around the corner, we're approaching Depression and Mental Health Awareness Month. The nationally recognized event signifies the need for mental health resources and services. That's something that Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says his 2022 budget will focus on. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more on the story. Earlier today, mental health professionals joined Dane County Executive Joe Parisi on Madison Southside to announce more funding for local mental health initiatives. Parisi says his forthcoming 2022 budget will focus heavily on expanding mental health resources for county residents. And because mental health is one area in which we can never become complacent, the 2022 budget will continue to advance innovative solutions to our community's evolving behavioral health needs. Parisi proposes adding $440,000 into the county's 2022 budget to expand the rapidly growing Behavioral Health Resource Center, which acts as a connection spot between individuals and mental health service providers. But that's not the only investment into mental health that will be proposed this Friday. Parisi also announced the creation of a new local government division to handle mental health matters. I'm creating a brand new division of county government to oversee our expanding array of behavioral health initiatives. This new Dane County Division of Behavioral Health will become part of our Department of Human Services beginning in 2022. The budget includes over $500,000 in funding for a new director and staff to get the Behavioral Health Division off the ground. The first task for this new division? the creation of a more than $10 million facility, the Dane County Mental Health Crisis Triage Center. As the single largest item on the county's 2022 capital budget, the new center will offer more advanced, individualized services to people in a mental health crisis. Either through referral or walk-in, an individual can reside within the facility for up to 23 hours with access to professional-level care before being directed to other service providers. This new facility will piggyback off of what the Behavioral Health Resource Center offers, and it aims to keep individuals in crisis out of the criminal justice system. The proposal will first be introduced this Friday and will likely extend through November as it makes its way through the county government. Parisi says the triage center will likely be up and running in two to three years. Parisi has been a consistent advocate for mental health initiatives since his election into county executive in 2011, but he says that the pandemic has increased the need for more mental health resources. And so we want to continue to push the envelope because we know there's a lot of need and that need's only going to grow, particularly as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, People were challenged before, they're facing even more challenges now. Along with the Triage Center, the budget will allocate $500,000 through the Building Bridges Initiative to increase mental health services in schools across Dane County. Parisi also hinted at proposals to increase programming for senior citizens, create new youth centers, and a collaboration with the Dane County Sheriff to implement virtual help from mental health providers during mental health crisis calls. I'm WORT reporter Ben Kern. Last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to consider a Republican-led redistricting lawsuit as an original action, leapfrogging the state's lower courts. 
That suit is one of several redistricting battles making their way through federal and state courts. For the play-by-play, we joined our producer, Jonah Chester, at the political ringside. The fighters have taken their corners. The starting bell has been rung. It's official. Wisconsin's decennial redistricting brawl has begun. That's right, folks. It's the once-every-decade legal debate that's sweeping the state. In this corner, it's the Republican-held state legislature. Coming off their victory in 2011, which took the match all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, the GOP is looking for another win this time around. And in the other corner, it's Wisconsin's legislative Democrats and Governor Tony Evers. These contenders may have been defeated by the Republicans last time around, but they've spent the last decade preparing and are coming in swinging and ready for another fight. Wisconsin's 2021 redistricting brawl is a fight with two main rings, federal and state court. The process officially kicked off last month when the state received full returns from the 2020 census. The state-level redistricting process, which is for legislative and congressional seats, is largely separated from county and municipal redistricting efforts. If we are sticking to the boxing analogy, think of them as matches in two different arenas. And last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to hear a Republican-led redistricting lawsuit directly, leapfrogging the state's lower courts. That suit, which is being brought by the conservative-leaning Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL for short, seeks to have the state's high court redraw Wisconsin's legislative maps. It's similar to a case the Democrats are bringing, which seeks to have the federal courts redraw the map. Anthony Lococo, a deputy legal counsel with WILL, explains the difference. The difference between the two is that the state action involves state constitutional claims, whereas the federal action involves federal constitutional claims. The United States Supreme Court has made clear that drawing district maps is primarily a state duty and a state responsibility. So in the event that the political branches can't agree, we think it should be the Wisconsin Supreme Court that ends up drawing the maps. So I think that claim suffers from uh, being technically truthful, but leaving out the whole truth. Sachin Chetta is the founder and co-director of the Fair Elections Project, an election reform organization. Chetta was also one of the organizers behind the legal challenge to Wisconsin's 2011 legislative maps, a case which eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court. He describes Will's lawsuit as, quote, venue shopping. But what that leaves out is there are federal issues at stake. There are Voting Rights Act, federal voting rights issues at stake. Um, And the federal courts have a tremendous amount of experience in redistricting. What that argument from Will leaves out, of course, is that in 1981, 1991, and 2001, the federal court is who drew the maps, not the state court. Since the cases are being fought in two different court systems, Lococo says that it's possible, but unlikely, that the court's rulings could be at odds with each other. Lococo says that Will has asked the federal courts to hold off on making a decision while the state-level lawsuit is ongoing. If the Wisconsin Supreme Court were to draw the maps, it's, it's highly unlikely that the federal court would, would, would put out its own set of maps. You could see the federal court reviewing the Wisconsin Supreme Court's maps, 
Um, but I don't think you'd have a situation where you have two different maps. Meanwhile, in a separate filing on Friday, Republican lawmakers asked the U.S. Supreme Court to just toss the Democrats' federal court case. The nation's high court has not yet indicated whether it will take up the issue. Legislative Republicans are also introducing a resolution which seeks to preserve current legislative district lines, the same ones that were drawn in 2011 to favor legislative Republicans. According to the Associated Press, that resolution will be before the legislature for a vote tomorrow. And all of this is just a prelude. Lawmakers haven't even floated an official map proposal yet. Both Evers and legislative Republicans have been soliciting public input on the process, but neither side has put forward a firm proposal yet. Evers's nonpartisan People's Map Commission was announced during his 2020 State of the State address. The Republican-led public input campaign was announced by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss last month, and the deadline for submitting feedback through that site closes on October 15th. Chetta says the next round is likely going to start in the next few weeks. I think by the end of October, you will see map proposals basically from all sides. And so then I think what happens in October and November is there's some debate about whether or not the two sides can come to an agreement and and agree on a fair map, which would forestall quite a bit of the litigation. If those negotiations break down, lawmakers have just a few months to finish duking the issue out in court. According to the Wisconsin Elections Commission, new legislative maps need to be finalized by March 1st to allow candidates to circulate nomination papers for the fall 2022 elections. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Stu Levitan, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. Well, thank you, Joni, and thank you, Nick. A, a nice, playful approach to a really important story. Again, uh, the kind of in- news and interpretation you're not going to get at, uh, at other radio or television stations. As I mentioned in the early break, I'm just so proud to be associated with the WRT news team, the award-winning WRT news team. Now, we're not supposed to go through life in a competitive mode. I understand that. But, you know, when it comes time to award season and we go up against, you know, big commercial radio stations in statewide journalism competitions, and we bring home not just bronze and silver, but we bring home gold awards, it's a testament to the quality of the journalism that we provide. And that's a quality and that's a testament to you, our listeners, because you are the ones who have enabled us to provide you with this news. You're the ones whose donations buy those tape recorders and microphones. You're the ones whose donations help pay for our bare-bones staff. You're the ones who keep the lights on, and, and we appreciate it, and we like to think that we're performing a service that you appreciate. You hear from us throughout the year. Now is one of those times of the year we need to hear from you. You know, I was thinking about, you know, I read these history books, and I was thinking the history of the WRT technology is so impressive. As, as I mentioned, when we started in 1975, a 100-foot transmitter on a tower on a house on Winnebago Street that no longer exists. And we didn't even reach the entirety of the city of Madison. And then we went on the 800-foot tower on w, uh, the uh, Channel 15 tower out on the Beltline, and our range expanded from expanded to 65, a radius of 65 miles. You could hear us all the way in Rockford, Illinois, and up in Oconomowoc. Uh, and then we went on the Internet. 
And you could hear us around the world. And then we archived our programs, and you could go back and you could listen to a program you previously missed or wanted to hear again. And now we've got an app, uh, because to, to have that kind of technology is important in, in the modern media landscape. And we want to thank Harry Richardson. Let's give Harry Richardson a double pledge, a double ding here, because Harry's made a nice uh, donation. We appreciate his support. He's given us a call at 608-256-2001, and, and uh, he likes the live local news of public affair and letters and politics. We thank you, uh, Harry, and we're going to go back to uh, Jonah and Nick and hear some more live local news. A new report by the investigative news outlet Wisconsin Watch finds that Wisconsin schools called police on students at double the national rate during the 2017-2018 school year. That over-policing disproportionately impacts black, native, and disabled students. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Angelica Usury, a reporter with Madison 365 and the investigation's co-author. How pervasive is this issue? Is it, is it an issue that affects all of Wisconsin schools, or is it more focused in a few particular areas? I honestly would say it, it affects all schools in the state. The numbers show that over half the schools in the state have SROs or police activity or the school boards have like a partnership with police departments. And, you know, it, it affects the students who are the minorities in these predominantly white schools in Wisconsin. So like the indigenous students, the students, the black students, the brown students, and those students who have disabilities are negatively affected by it. So I would say it affects the whole state, and it's a it's really an issue that affects the whole country, if we're being honest. For some reason, we just are comfortable with putting our children in the hands of police officers. Let's dive into that a little bit more. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of schools use SROs or school resource officers. It's essentially a fancy mm-hmm. word for police in schools. Uh, now, yeah. when school boards and school administration place those SROs into schools, assumedly their their intent is to increase security in those buildings. But tell me about the, yeah. the detrimental effects those SROs can actually have. Yeah, I think there's oftentimes a misunderstanding between SROs and the school community. They come in with certain trainings and certain ideas of what safety looks like, and that's not the case for all students. So, uh, you know, some students are really negatively affected by their presence. And then when they come into the schools and have interactions with the students that don't go so well, they immediately, like if the SRO doesn't understand the student or is called to get a student out of the class, you know, that relationship is already negative. You know, they, the first encounter they have with the SRO is them being, them coming to get them from their class to discipline them. I think the intentions behind it were pure, but I think it's really important to understand that everything doesn't work for, for all students. And then we can't pretend that some SROs don't have biases and don't discriminate against certain students because they do too. So, you know, they are there to make the school safer, but it, it doesn't actually end up, end up that way in most cases. Tell me about how Wisconsin students of color, their bad behavior is criminalized, whereas maybe their white counterparts is just seen as just that bad behavior, not, not something to be taken care of by a school resource officer. Yeah, the students who are disabled, indigenous students, the black students, the brown students are 
criminalized and disciplined by SROs and police law enforcement three times as much as the white students are in their schools. And Wisconsin is a predominantly white state. The schools in Wisconsin are predominantly white outside of Milwaukee, but the students are criminalized and at rates higher than the numbers they take up in the schools. <laughs> I hope that that makes sense. It's, it's kind of weird to say because it's, it's crazy, you know, that the students are barely showing up in the numbers, but their rates of referrals are higher than the actual percentage that they are in the schools. And that just comes from discrimination. Honestly, how does this trend play out locally? Because, you know, the, the Madison Metropolitan School District last year cut its ties with with the MPD, the Madison Police Department. Uh, the MMSD mm-hmm. school board said no more school resource officers in buildings. Do we have any data from MMSD on how referrals to police of misbehaving students have those gone down at all? Have we seen any impact on the data there? Or is it a bit too early to tell? Yeah, they. I was told that it was a bit too early to tell because that the numbers that we based the the work off of is from 2017 to 2018, and then that 2019 and 2020 school year was the beginning of the pandemic, so there was no um, in person school. So they don't have the data to show yet. Outside of MMSD's decision to cut school resource officers, how is this issue being addressed in other school districts across the state? Tell me how they're handling this issue. Honestly, (laughs) um, a lot of school districts didn't get back to me about wanting to talk about police in schools. Myself and my editor, Rob Chappelle, reached out to some school districts throughout the state, like Green Bay and areas like that, and there was no um, no communication back. I will say I talked to the the director of school safety at the DOJ, Kristen Devitt. She's a super nice lady, Um, and she just gave some really good advice about how schools need to school communities being like faculty staff and students especially need to decide whether or not they want to have police in schools and what that looks like for them so I would say that the step that people can that schools can take is bring students into the conversation but I didn't get I'm sorry I didn't get any like interviews with school boards they didn't respond from how you're sounding, you sound a little bit exasperated on that point. How do you in- interpret that silence? <laughs> well, I'm sure you know, as a reporter, getting ignored is frustrating. <laughs> um, but I think it was it was really disheartening, especially because Wisconsin, the numbers were so high in all disparities. The Center for Public in- Integrity did a story first nationally. And so, you know, Wisconsin was the highest in black students, Latino students, Pacific Islander students, and especially disabled students. So I was really looking to hear from faculty at schools to see what they had to say about it. And I didn't get anything back. And I think, you know, that silence is is violent, really. You know, it's it's saying that it's not worth their attention or worth the conversation. And it's something that people want to keep swept under the rug while while students are arrested. It's unfortunate. Angelica, thank you so much for, for taking time to chat with me. Before I let you go for the afternoon, is there anything else you want to add to the record about your story that we haven't quite covered here today that you, you feel folks should be aware of? I go to UW. Um, I'm a doctoral student in the Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis Department. And... I can honestly say this story made me 
more scared to be a student in the school in the state of Wisconsin. And I know the numbers that in the data that we took was from K through 12 schools, but it's, it's a larger issue that needs to be addressed. And I hope it does one day. <laughs> My kid's not going to school in Wisconsin. <laughs> Absolutely not. Angelica, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Angelica Usury is a reporter at Madison 365. We'll have a link to this story online at the web version of this interview at wortfm.org, or you can just find it online at wisconsinwatch.org. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. we got the week ahead in local government on Forward Lookout. Remember the Los Angeles Times bombing of 1910 and review two new films. But now we'll hear some news from around the world. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, joined by my co-host, Jonah Chester. Thanks for joining us. Each Monday, feature contributor Brenda Conkle sits down with our producer Dylan Brogan to get the week ahead in local government. On this week's edition of Forward Lookout, redistricting, green infrastructure, east side alcohol license, and so much more. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We continue to have virtual meetings. We'll let you know when they're not virtual meetings, so you can uh, log on virtually. That's the whole point. And we'll start with Dane County, 530, already in progress. The Personnel and Finance Committee is in action. So what are they talking about right now, Brenda? So they have a whole bunch of routine items, but they are also looking at increasing the public health staff um, to continue working on COVID-19 response and recovery. They're also looking at uh, getting a report about the American recovery plan and how all those millions of dollars are being spent by the county. Let's go to Tuesday, 515, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, PP&J, for those in the know. And they will be, they're talking about PFOS, which is pretty interesting. I guess that is public protection, isn't it? Um, yeah, some of these items are kind of uh, being a lot more referrals than they used to. So, yes. Uh, we usually think going... of that committee as uh, stuff with the jail or the sheriff's office. or. Yep. And this time they will be talking about PFOS and airport construction, as well as temporary and permanent solutions for uh, people experiencing homelessness. So a little bit uh, off topic for them. Um, be interesting to see how they operate with that. And then they are also going to get a presentation about jail operations and this history of consolidation efforts. Um, so a little bit of a history lesson. And then they're getting some quarterly reports. And quite a history it is. Yes. yes. Very long. And, uh, <laughs> if people think the debate about the Dane County Jail is then hot recently, well, it's been pretty much on the agenda for 30 years, right? Probably more. Right. <laughs> and then we'll move on to Wednesday, 9 o'clock uh, a.m., the Area Agency on Aging. Its Legislative and Advocacy Committee will be meeting virtually. Uh, they have a diversity work group that looks like they'll be hearing from. And uh, what else? Well, they are a very good advocacy committee. They yes. usually get um, most of what they want in the budget. And so they will be working on their 2022 budget priorities. Um, and then they are going to be talking about ageism and 
future action items that they are going to do around ageism. That's good. And particularly when it has to do with employment. That's a big problem. Yes. We got the food council meeting Wednesday at 530. They will be a couple presentations. Anything else? Yep, they'll, worth be, noting? they'll be having a joint presentation with the Madison Food Policy Council. Um, and for that, they will be getting a presentation from Second Harvest Food Bank. Um, as well as reinvigorating the role of the uh, food councils in analyzing, revising, and recommending ordinances and other legislation. Rebecca Kemble and Nan Fay will be doing a presentation about that. And then afterwards at 545, or as soon as that is over with, they will have um, the rest of their meeting, and it is mostly reports. 530 Wednesday, the Park Commission... One of the few committees that hasn't been meeting virtually because they go meet out in a county park. And this week, it's the Badger Prairie County Park over in Verona. They will be talking about a conservation grant. Uh, anything else? Purchasing some more land for Schumacher Farm oh, Park. Okay. Um, and then they have some more uh grant fund applications that they'll be looking at and then getting some reports about Ice Age Trail, Badger Prairie Community Garden, and Red and Sacred Park. And the prairie enthusiasts might be, they're applying for a grant from the prairie enthusiasts. Yes. Yes. Who Exciting. Is, who, but who isn't enthusiastic <laughs> about prairies? Let's, I'm being, with all seriousness, it's just, I like that. Enough about me. Five o'clock, the Environmental, Agricultural, and Natural Resources Committee. And another hot topic, redistricting. Uh, that's happening Thursday at 7 p.m., uh, the redistricting commission. That's really, uh, they're, they're voting on maps now. So this is starting, they've been working on this a while, but it's kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty. They are. Special note, final vote on three maps will be submitted to the county board. So um, they are going to be voting. So if you are interested, they'll be doing a presentation first about the district maps. You can give some input and then they will make their final recommendations. So they're recommending three possible district maps to the, the full yeah. board? And then, okay. uh, yeah, and then allowing the county board to, to choose which one they, they want. All right. That's been a good way to do it. Um, and now we're moving on to the city of Madison at 430, already in progress. Looks like a very lengthy finance committee meeting. So this is already in progress. Uh, just give us a snippet of, of what this important committee is working on this week. Um, they also will be looking at the public health department and giving them more funds for more staffing around covid um, they are also going to be looking at uh, $400,000 of American Rescue Plan Act money to go towards the public market, uh, the Madison public market. And then they will be talking about purchasing two pieces of property, one for a temporary men's shelter and one for potentially the permanent men's shelter. Um, the one is at Zaire Road, which was originally turned down by the council. And then another one is at Bartillon Drive. And then Last but not least, they will be going, doing the um, capital budget. They have eight amendments for that. And then they're going to go into closed session potentially to talk about uh, Judge Joe Square, something huh. that has been going on nearly as long as the jail. Yes, that's true. Now, uh, <laughs> back to the permanent men's shelter. Is this a different property in Zaire Road? No, it's the same property. It's still available huh. for sale. They are purchasing it to be a temporary shelter and then determining what the use would be afterwards. Um, and then they're buying Bartillon to be the permanent one um, because they can move in quickly at the Zaire Road location. Okay. Bartillon um, had a fire and they're, they're going to have to tear down that building, rebuild something. Wednesday, 530, the ALRC, the Alcohol License Review Committee. Usually uh, some some good quality city government uh entertainment but for obviously important reasons small businesses and such they're going to be they're going to be looking at a 
some licenses. That's what they do, right, Brenda? They're not looking at. They'll be reviewing some licenses. Yes, they will. Um, Most of them happen to be on uh, East Washington or Williamson Avenue. Um, So if you live in those neighborhoods, you might want to pay attention. Um, But there's a classic arcade, uh, the Dark Horse. um, And then also they have one over on Sherman Avenue and one on North Francis Street. So lots of different uh, downtown area licenses. They also will be looking at reviewing committee rules of procedure and then look at having a discussion about operating licenses and trying to do an equity analysis on them and potentially creating a subcommittee that would um, look at approvals between the ALRC meetings. Um, and so they are also going to have that debate about should they be virtual or should they go back to in-person future meetings. Very interesting. And I'm surprised you so casually mentioned uh, a very controversial issue, which is pinball having to do with this arcade. <laughs> it, cur- it Some say it corrupts the youth. You know, you never know. <laughs> All right. Then you add alcohol into it? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Just trying to liven it up here a bit. And finally, before we go, Brenda, tell us about a special meeting of the Plan Commission, formerly the Planning Commission, which makes sense, at 5 p.m. Thursday. But it's a special meeting. They usually meet Mondays, I believe, but they're, they have a special meeting. Yep, they have two, two, two topics on their agenda. One is potential zoning changes, um, and it's all around green infrastructure. So they're talking about rainwater harvesting, uh, lot coverage, green roofs, landscaping, landscaping standards, and... Um, verification of as-built conditions. So looking at green infrastructure and how to encourage that through the zoning code. And then the second topic they'll be discussing will be bus rapid transit. Um, And that is um, mostly around transit-oriented development. Um, Looking at, you know, the federal grant, what it will allow, where the plans are going to be, and what kind of transit-oriented development they would like to be encouraging. Another hot topic here in Madison, bus rapid transit, at least if you're a mayor. Apparently, all these mayors have opinions about bus rapid transit. Brenda knows what I'm talking about. And thank you. As, uh, thank you for speaking with us, Brenda. Go to forwardlookout.com for more uh, meetings and agendas and uh, other valuable information about what's happening in local government. Brenda, as always, thank you. Thanks, Dylan. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson remembers the Los Angeles Times bombing of 1910 and its impact on the American labor movement. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. This Friday, October 1st, marks the anniversary of the bombing of the Los Angeles Times building in 1910. Six months earlier, the International Union of Bridge and Structural Workers, or Iron Workers Union, had begun a strike to win a minimum wage of 50 cents an hour. 1,500 workers were on strike. Harrison Gray Otis, the owner of the Los Angeles Times, was also the leader of the Merchant and Manufacturers Association, which aimed to break the strike. Six months of striking had brought legal bans of picketing and mass arrests, and on October 1st, a bomb exploded by the side of the Los Angeles Times building at 1.07 a.m., when 115 people were at work. The second floor came down on the office workers below and ruptured gas mains fed a fire that spread quickly through the building, killing 21 people and injuring over 100. Unexploded bombs were later found outside the homes of the president and the secretary of the M&M. Otis, 
put on a one page special accusing Union forces of the bombing the next day, of waging warfare by murder as well as terror, and vowed the dynamiters must hang and the labor movement with it. Union member Ordy McManigle was fingered as the bomber and accused of acting on orders from John McNamara, the Union Secretary-Treasurer. McManigal turned state's evidence implicating McNamara and his brother, James, and also Frank Ryan, the Union president, and most of the Union's officers. Newspaper owner Otis had long led a vicious anti-Union campaign, partly in reaction to that the nation's Union movement, the Socialist Party, and progressive reformers believed the McNamara's were framed to discredit the labor movement. They formed a temporary alliance, organizing McNamara defense committees all around the country. Famous attorney Clarence Darrow was hired for the defense. On May 5, 1911, the defendants pled not guilty. The next day, AFL Executive Committee pledged to raise the $350,000 Darrow said would be needed. A film was made with union backing titled A Martyr to the Cause. 50,000 people attended its premiere in Cincinnati. Labor Day, 1911 was declared McNamara Day. Tens of thousands marched in Cleveland, St. Louis, Indianapolis, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Seattle, San Francisco, Oakland, Portland, San Diego, and Los Angeles. 20,000 marched in Los Angeles alone. Leading up to the trial, thousands rallied in New Orleans and in Philadelphia. Gomper spoke to 15,000. There were smaller rallies across the nation. However, Darrow was unable to uncover evidence to support the McNamara's innocence. Defense witnesses and the McNamara's relatives were harassed by detectives, evicted from their homes, and fired from their jobs. Evidence suggested that the bomb was set for 4 a.m. when no workers would be present, but the timer failed. Also, the bombers likely didn't know about the gas lines that ended up creating the deadly fire. It is possible the bomber had intended property destruction alone. Lincoln Steffens, the muckraking journalist, offered to negotiate a plea deal, convincing the McNamara's to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty, as long as prosecutors would drop the cases against other labor leaders and officials would pursue negotiations for labor peace. After promising shorter sentences, the judge reneged on the deal, sentencing James McNamara to life in prison and John McNamara to 15 years, but also continuing the prosecutions of other labor figures. Unable to believe the McNamara's innocence anymore, almost all labor leaders repudiated the McNamara brothers. But Big Bill Hayward said the crimes of the McNamara's were nothing compared to the crimes of capitalism. Debs took a similar tack. The Socialist Party, while condemning the bombing, stood its ground, saying they had stood for a fair trial against the lawless acts of Otis. Forty-six union officials were charged with conspiracy. Thirty-nine were found guilty. Ironworker President Frank Ryan received the harshest sentence of seven years. The following year, union membership plummeted nationally. Union membership in Los Angeles did not rise again until the 50s. James McNamara died in prison of cancer in 1941. He had refused to file for parole. He died a member of the Communist Party. He declared, I will find my freedom only in the liberation of the working class. John J. McNamara was released after seven years and returned to work as an organizer for the iron workers. In a 1957 interview, he never admitted guilt for the bombing. And that is our story for today. For the past is and past, I'm Harry Richardson. Coming up, we're going to review two new movies. But first, 
We're asking for your financial support during WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. We're going to pass it off to Stu Levitan for the details. Well, thank you, Jonah and Nick. And another great report from Harry Richardson. And I was remiss earlier when I when I thanked Harry for being a listener sponsor by noting that, of course, he's also a feature contributor. I mean, that's the kind of folks we have here at WRT. Not only do we uh, make pledges, but we we make uh, feature reports. And we've got someone to thank. Let me move. We've got Paul to thank. We appreciate Paul making a, a web pledge. So thank you, Paul, for showing your support for listener-sponsored WRT News. We, you know, we come to you throughout the year. Now is one of the times we need to hear from you to show that you appreciate. Now, you're not going to hear a, a report like what Harry Richardson just gave us on the, on the Los Angeles Times bombing, on <laughs> certainly on any commercial radio station, and probably not on too many non-commercial radio stations. We've got feature contributors who, in addition to our news-gathering volunteers, bring you their individual perspective. We had that great report from Brenda Conkle, the, the forward look at it's, you know, some really interesting uh, analysis of local news, that great report from Harry Richardson. I have the privilege on Wednesdays of doing a thing called Mass in the 60s that uh, talks, uh, you know, like, like Harry, I go back in time because... Uh, I prefer the past, uh, but we have the future to worry about, and that's where you come in by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, going online at wrtfm.org, or using that snazzy new Wart app. The future's now. The future's coming. There are new stories to gather. There are feature reports to, to relate to you. We need your support. You listen. You give. Let's go back to Nick and Jonah and hear some more live local news. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two serious films. The new documentary Blood Brothers, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, and Blue Bayou, a feature film about a Korean-American and his fight against deportation. Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X. They define a whole generation to be themselves and be bold. That was clipped from the trailer for Blood Brothers. Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, the new documentary on the complicated relationship between Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, directed by Marcus Clark. The film borrows its name from the book by Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith, who are among the film's talking heads. The bulk of the movie covers the years from 1960 to 1965, when Malcolm X was assassinated in New York. The two men became friends through the Nation of Islam and were tragically split apart by the struggle between Malcolm X and the nation's volatile leader, Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm saw the road to black liberation through political action, through revolution, and internationalism. Elijah was more narrowly focused on a kind of black capitalism, nationalism mixed in with his unique version of Islam. Ironically, both were deeply influenced by Marcus Garvey. The film touches on Malcolm's early life and his parents' work as Garveyites. His father was killed when he was six, allegedly in a streetcar accident, but his mother said he was killed by white supremacists. When he was 12, Malcolm's mom suffered a nervous breakdown and was confined to a mental institution. Malcolm and his siblings were split up into foster homes. He went from foster home to foster home, eventually moving to New York and getting into petty crime. He turned to the Nation of Islam in prison. When he got out, he quickly became one of the group's leaders. Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky in 1942. He grew up in the Jim Crow South and was profoundly affected by the murder of Emmett Till by white supremacists. He found his escape in boxing going to the 1960 Olympics. He returned 
a champ, and turned pro. There's a good scene in the film with Malcolm and Muhammad, still Cassius Clay then, getting together before his fight with Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship in 64. Malcolm helped encourage Clay before the fight and joined him in the celebration after. Clay formally joined the Nation of Islam and was given the name Muhammad Ali by Elijah Muhammad soon after that. Malcolm, after the assassination of President Kennedy, made his famous chickens coming home to roost speech. This provided the cover for Elijah Muhammad to eject Malcolm from the nation, which set up his later assassination by members of the nation. Muhammad Ali felt little choice but to reject Malcolm as well. The movie does a good job of telling their story with its various experts, especially insightful were Cornell West and the Reverend Al Sharpton. There were especially moving sections from their respective family members, most especially Ali's brother, Rahman Ali, and two of Malcolm's daughters. Well worth seeing. It just started showing on Netflix. Now for a movie from another outsider, set in New Orleans. I just don't understand how they can deport him. I was brought here when I was three. Can't we do something about this? I mean, listen to him, look at him, he's American. ISIS is targeting people like you. And that was a clip from the trailer for Blue Bayou, written and directed by Justin Chon. Chon also played the lead, Antonio LeBlanc, a Korean-American. He came to the U.S. when he was three years old, but still has to explain in job interview as the film opens, where are you from? He says he grew up in St. Francisville, near New Orleans. But his would-be boss asks again, where are you from? And he gives in and says, Korea. But what seems to matter more are his convictions for stealing motorcycles. He has his innocent five-year-old stepdaughter, Jessie Sidney Kowalski, by his side. He doesn't get the job. Things go downhill from there. Antonio's tattoo parlor job doesn't pay enough, and his pregnant spouse, Kathy, an exceptional Alicia Vikander, has to go back to work. He has another run-in with the law, and his felony conviction puts him at risk for deportation, and he has to find money for a lawyer, a convincing Vondi Curtis Hall. The only bright spot is his meeting Parker, a moving role by Lin Dan Pham, a Vietnamese-American who can relate to his situation. The film even has a convincing ending. A well-done movie, well worth seeing. It exposes the plight of perhaps as many as 64,000 people in the U.S. under threat of deportation from the only home they have ever known. The adoptee rights campaign is briefly noted in the closing credits. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Jonah Chester. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your pods. Up next, it's the most freeform show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. But we're going to pass it off one last time to Stu Levitan in the studio before we go. Good night, and keep those pledges coming. Well, thank you, Jonah and Nick. And yes, they were your hosts. I am your pledge rapper. Oh, and we have... People to thank. We have Mark from, uh, what's it? Where's Mark? Mark is, is from 
the west side of Madison, a first-time pledger. Thank you, Mark. We would love to see those first-time pledgers showing that we are, you know, getting a new audience. We appreciate Mark. Um, and Mar- Mark, Mark has forsworn a thank you gift. We got great thank you gifts, but Mark understands how important it is to, uh, you know, keep the money where where it's needed, and we appreciate that. Mark's favorite three favorite shows are Global Revolutions, Melon Floyd, and Back to the Country. Now, see, this is a great listener sponsor. He doesn't even cite the show he just listened to, but the show he pledged during. But he recognized that it's all one big pot that's supporting the supporting the Wart news team, supports the Wart music staff and the music team and the music programming. And we appreciate Mark's support as we appreciate Paul's support. We've got uh, Paul has made a, a generous contribution. Paul from the east side of Madison. So uh, we appreciate Paul and Mark getting in. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left to show your support for the live local news. Again, four live local, four hours of live local news in the week. That's more than the commercial radio stations give you in a month. In addition to that live local news, the, the news and public affairs programming here consists of the 8 o'clock buzz, Mellon Floyd, uh, Letters in Politics, Madison Bookbeat, uh, a, a public affair. It's just a, an amazing array of news and information, stuff that you won't get anywhere else. You know, the the host, the, the, the guests that we bring you on our talk shows, the news analysis through our feature contributors, the guests we, we have on our, our on the eight o'clock buzz, the public affair. It's just a, a wonderful array of important news and important information. A democracy depends on an informed electorate. And, you know, we've come pretty close to losing that democracy over the past couple of years. And we are still in danger of losing that democracy. And we need more educated voters. We need educated voters who are more educated. We need voters who are more educated because there is a lot of disinformation and malinformation out there. And the fact that a WRT listener can hear the local news from an independent source and can you know, debate or rebut or provide rejoinders to misinformation that may come from one of the unnamed corporate sources is important. And, you know, every once in a while you can get somebody to understand, oh, I've been misled. This is the actual reality. Uh, It it is such an honor to be part of this Wharton News team, as as I mentioned, the award-winning Wharton News team. And again, it is thanks to you, our listeners, who have made that possible. You know, newspaper reporters, all they need is a pad and a pen, and they come back, and the company provides them with a computer, and bingo, and they, and they that's it. But radio reporters, they have to, you know, have a tape recorder. They have to have microphones. They have to understand that technology. We have to have an audition, an Adobe, an Adobe audition license. All that takes money, and that money comes from you, our listener sponsors. So in addition to helping us go from that 100-foot transmitter to the 800-foot tower, and now the internet and the app, you're also the ones who have provided us with the tape recorders and the microphones and the windscreens and the Adobe licenses and the Zoom programs to enable us to do the job. As Winston Churchill once said, give us the tools and we will finish the job. That's my very bad impression of, uh, of a drunken Englishman. But you get the point. The point is, you hear from us throughout the year. Now is one of the times we really need from here. We've just got about, you know, 45 seconds left on on this uh, episode of the live local news. We're going to go to the Access Hour, another tremendous example of how Wart is community radio. 
where else can just, uh, you know, a member of the community say, hey, I want an hour of your airtime to go on and, and tell the people something that, that I think is important, to, to share my experiences with them. So we thank Mark. We thank Paul. We thank Karen. We thank Harry. We will thank you. 608-256-2001, WRTFM.org, uh, the WART app. You hear, the till is nil, we need to fill, money talks, nobody walks, you can't call collect, but do call direct. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.